Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, and today's program is part two of a series called Living with Lung Cancer, and today's program is focusing on caregivers, and it's for caregivers, practical tips, tips to cope with your loved one's lung cancer. And today's program is a collaborative program between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and I actually just want to call out some of the lung cancer organizations that have partnered with us on today's program. So we have um, lungcancer.org, Lung Cancer Alliance, Longevity, Free Me from Lung Cancer, Free to Breathe. So those are really additional resources specific to lung cancer that may be of interest to all of you um, as you have questions um, after the call as well. Um, now, uh, we're very delighted with your response to today's program. We have on the program today over 576 participants on the call, and you come from all the United States. And we also have, so from all different parts of the United States, and we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, Germany, and the UK. So really a bit of a global call, and uh, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now today's program and this two-part series is supported by Bristol-Myers-Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, a grant from Genentech, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for supporting this two-part series and also for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have the best speakers on today's program. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is a medical oncologist with the Thoracic Oncology Service, Developmental Therapeutics, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Lee is going to address the important role of a caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team, key questions to ask the doctor, follow-up care, and helping to manage your loved one's treatment, including taking their pills on schedule. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you to Cancer Care for providing this great forum uh, uh, to um, discuss uh, in this important aspect of patient care, the important role of caregiver in, in communicating with the healthcare team. Uh, now, as caregivers, you are an incredibly uh, important uh, part of patient care, and, you, and to so many of my patients, you make the world of difference. You are there to offer a source of support, comfort, and companionship for the patient. You do not dictate their lives, but you listen, you facilitate, you are there for them when you're needed, and to many, uh, you are their guardian angel. So I want to emphasize how important this role is uh, to begin with. Now, the key word here is communication, and we, uh, we should understand that as patients, caregivers, and also the healthcare team, we are on one team. Uh, really, we have a common enemy that is um, cancer, and we are on one team fighting this terrible disease that's really turned the patient's life upside down in most cases. So, the, in, in terms of uh, to make this work, 
communication is really key in, in our teamwork and uh, to, to allow us to have the best possible ability to, to fight this disease in the most efficient way. Um, so <clears throat> your role would be both on twofold, communicating with the healthcare team, but also communicating uh, with the patient uh, and to, to facilitate, because in, in the face of such devastating disease, uh, communication often can get lost uh, often when words are spoken, they may not be registered in the patient's mind when, when uh, he or she is facing uh, a life-threatening illness. And, uh, for, and, and for many reasons, things get forgotten, and it's important to have that caregiver right there, the support person, to be able to relay the messages back and forth so that the one team stays on track. So in communicating with the healthcare team, there are some questions you may want to consider asking the doctor at your clinic consultation. I believe the first question and the most important one would be whether this cancer is curable or is it not currently curable. In medical terms, this means whether the cancer is curative or the treatment would be palliative. Curative meaning that we can get rid of this disease once for all and, and that it never come back. That's a cure. Palliative treatment. I mentioned treatment because if, even if they are not curable, the disease is often treatable. We can provide treatments to prolong a patient's life and maximize and enhance the patient's quality of life. So those are important palliative treatments uh, that go a long way to make a difference in the patient's care. So even if they're not curable, uh, then the next question would be, what can we do? Uh, what, what treatments are available? Can this be treated? Can we help the patient in some way? And this often goes through a multidisciplinary approach I mean many different physicians, surgeons, specialists, medical specialists involved in the patient's care. And therefore, a, a particular lung cancer patient may have to see a thoracic medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a thoracic surgeon, a pulmonologist, a palliative care specialist, sometimes an interventional radiologist, and of course, the family physician or internist. So you have so many different healthcare providers on the one team, and, and hence it makes communication even more important. So patients often get confused as to it's, it's very difficult to, to know which specialist is doing what. And, and this is, all of this is foreign to the patient. So medical oncologist provides cancer treatment in the form of medicines, radiation, uh, that could be a pill or it could be intravenous therapy, such as chemotherapy or immunotherapy. The radiation oncologist provides uh, uh, therapy in the form of radiation, uh, so they're high-dose x-rays to treat uh, a particular tumor. And surgeons uh, would do the uh, surgical procedure, the surgical operation. Uh, they would be uh, really doing some cutting uh, to, to uh, get the tumor out. And, uh, and, and all of those three specialties are critically important in the patient's care. And in, in lung cancer, often all three are used. 
uh, at some at some point. Uh, and then the interventional radiologist would be a proceduralist who may be doing a biopsy under radiologic guidance under a CT scan. A pulmonologist may <coughs> may be helpful in managing chronic airways disease at the same time and perhaps doing doing bronchoscopic procedures. So communication is key and it may be important to know who's who. Who is the medical oncologist? Who is the radiation oncologist? And getting that down on a piece of paper and so you can orient the patient when needed. So it's important to establish um, uh, a proxy at some point during the care because when patients are well enough to make their own decisions, that's very good. And, and you as the caregiver ought to be there to support the patient. However, when patients, some patients are not cured and their health condition declines and deteriorates, and in some circumstances they are not able to make their own decision, it's important uh, uh, to, to decide in advance with the patient who would act as a health care proxy to make med medical decisions on the patient's behalf when he or she is not able to do so. Um, and then standard really treatment questions and follow-up questions. And I, I would urge you also to ask the oncologist uh, what clinical trials are available for patients. As we all know, the lung cancer statistics are not good, and that's published worldwide. But this is a rapidly changing field. And, and with rapidly advancing science and technology and medicine, we hope to do better every single day. And clinical trials are the avenue to make such advances at, at, at real, in real life for patients. Uh, and they provide treatment opportunities that are not otherwise available. And therefore, I would encourage asking about clinical trials uh, when available. So in terms of follow-up, um, you will see the oncologist or the surgeon periodically for regular follow-up, and that's almost certain that will happen depending on the nature of the, uh, the disease. Uh, and uh, it's important for healthcare team to understand how the patient has been doing from the, since the last clinic visit, for example, a few weeks ago, four weeks ago, or how, how has that month been for the patient from your angle when, when the patient has not been seeing the, uh, the oncologist? So from the caregiver's angle, whether the patient has been active, physically active, or, or more fatigued, uh, has the appetite changed, has the, uh, what about the emotional well-being? All those things are subtle observations that you could make and communicate to the healthcare team. And uh, oncologists would be very, very interested to know. And though they, these are essential parts of history taking that would help uh, with patient treatment decisions. So um, it's it's important just being being there and to communicate and um, and certainly if there are uh, issues with treatment including side effects uh, and even swallowing pills you know some pills you need a, a, a big and need a, a huge glass of water to to swallow down and and sometimes uh, patients because of cancer complications have difficulty swallowing so all those things need to be reported back to the healthcare team in order to make the uh, the right treatment decisions. So there's so many, so much more uh, that um, uh, that caregivers can can offer 
and uh, Dr. Palos and Dr. Uh, O'Brien will be going into further details of, of some of the uh, aspects. And I will just stop here. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That was really outstanding and many, many helpful tips for everybody and just, and, uh, just very informative. And um, I know there will be questions for you um, during the Q&A. I can see they're already coming in, actually. Um, and we haven't even explained to everybody how to queue up for questions, but some people do know how to pose questions in our chat feature here. So thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe or Dr. Lupe Palos. Dr. Palos is actually her own healthcare team. She's an RN, a Master's in Social Work, and a Doctor of Public Health. She's a Clinical Research Manager, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Clinical of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing the stresses of caregiving, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, and the importance of taking care of yourself. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Palos. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for your introduction and for the invitation to participate in this very important discussion on stress and the caregiver. Dr. Lee did a wonderful job in giving a thorough overview of the importance of having a relationship with your physician as well as other members of your team. As he stated, one critical member of the patient's team is their caregiver, and today we are going to discuss the experience of being a caregiver. In today's calls, I'm going to also address the following questions. Who are caregivers and what do they do? What is the impact of caregiving on physical and mental health? How can caregivers bring a sense of balance back into their lives and maintain their own health and wellness? When is the time to seek support or help, and from whom? And how can a caregiver cope with special occasions such as the holidays, vacations, and other similar events? Some people believe cancer should be faced alone. These thoughts can be due to cultural factors, spiritual beliefs, or not wishing to be a burden on anyone. Yet facing cancer alone can have a negative impact on a patient's recovery and outcomes. So it's good to take an inventory of who around you could be included in a caregiver support network. Take a moment, and if you have a pen and paper handy, jot down the names of folks you believe could be a part of your network. And just brainstorm. This is your brainstorming moment. Cancer is a family matter. But remember, family is, and the structure that it once was is no longer the same in, our, um, in today's world. The family structure no longer follows the traditional model. Family models are diverse in numerous ways. We must remind ourselves to look outside the traditional family structure, mom, dad, children, uh, nuclear, you know, close aunts and uncles, but look outside when we are building our caregiver support system. Who is a caregiver? Informal caregivers, which is what we're talking about today, are unpaid persons who provide physical, practical, or emotional care, or a combination of all, to survivors and patients in the home or other health care settings. About a third of the U.S. adult population serve as caregivers to someone who is ill, aged, or disabled. Most caregivers are women, but the percentage of males as caregivers is rapidly increasing. There are even children and adolescents who serve as caregivers. So there also is sometimes some confusion between a uh, professional caregiver and an, an, a family caregiver or the informal caregiver. So we're not going to talk about the needs of the professional caregiver. That's a whole different topic. But we're going to speak today and focus on the informal or the family caregiver. 
So caregivers are the persons who help a patient with their day-to-day activities, such as bathing, getting dressed, or preparing food. Caregivers can form caregiver teams, so one person isn't responsible for doing everything. So depending on what point of the journey the cancer patient is at, the support that a caregiver uh, needs will change and vary. For example, during treatment, a caregiver may find themselves giving medications, keeping logs of when those medications were to be given, keeping a track of the side effects resulting from those medications, making sure the prescriptions were filled on time, and so on and so on. Those of you on this call who are caregivers right now know what I'm talking about. These types of caregiving responsibilities can be quite a challenge and at times a very stressful experience. So what is stress? Stress is defined as the point to which life situations are thought of as stressful. This type of stress, though, is not always harmful. For example, we can experience stress during a job interview or the first time we try something new. It tends to go away once the situation is resolved. Caregiver stress, on the other hand, is generally harmful to the caregiver's health. It is defined as the unequal exchange of assistance among people, which can result in tension and fatigue on the caregiver. Some of the symptoms of the first stress we were talking about would include feeling overwhelmed, being irritable or tense, having feelings of lack of control or uncertainty. Other indicators would be feeling isolated. These types of feelings are normal and common feelings for a caregiver. However, studies suggest that there are more harmful consequences impacting the caregiver's health. So let's talk a little bit about the physical challenges that occur in a, on a caregiver's health. There, the challenges of being a caregiver include experience symptoms such as fatigue, sleep problems, changes in weight. It could be gaining weight or losing weight and other similar types of events. Effects on the caregiver's um, health, emotional health include feelings of anxiety, sadness, or even depression. The combination of these symptoms form caregiver burden, and the experience for a long period of time can lead to long-term stress. And long-term stress, we have found, again, studies show that these suppress the immune system. It increases a caregiver's chances of developing chronic health problems such as heart disease or high blood pressure. So in the past, a lot of our discussion on caregiving has seemed to focus on the negative aspects of being a caregiver, and you heard some of those just now um, on the physical and the um, emotional health of a caregiver. So I would like to share some thoughts, though, expressed by caregivers on the benefits of caregiving. Caregivers, a few caregivers have said, I have a more accepting attitude of life. I adjust to things I can't change. A caregiver said, it taught me to be a strong person. And another said, as a caregiver, I met people who became my best friends. And one other said, I found a deeper sense of purpose in life. In all these circumstances, being a caregiver seemed to help one to integrate negative experiences into the world in, in a meaningful manner. So it became meaningful to them. And a positive aspect came out of that. So there's no doubt that being a cancer caregiver puts one on a roller coaster of emotions. Again, that part is normal. However, when the challenges become overwhelming, it's time to find ways to deal with them. So if you are feeling overwhelmed, extremely blue or sad, or experience extreme fatigue, seek help from a professional. Caregiver stress and burden are recognized as risk factors to a person's health by many healthcare professions. 
These are physicians, social workers, psychologists, spiritual leaders, and others. And they can help manage these feelings or help identify resources, such as cancer care, which can provide different types of assistance. Uh, and like cancer care, include um, provide online support groups. And Ms. O'Brien is going to speak about that in just a moment in great detail. So I mentioned we were going to talk about strategies for being proactive and planning ahead for special occasions. So I'd like to move to that topic. We often associate special memories or certain traditions with the holidays, some of which may not be feasible when dealing with the cancer experience. I suspect that a few of you may be wondering, can we as family have good celebrations when we are dealing with hospital visits, treatment, side effects, and other realities associated with cancer? My response to that question is yes. Families can celebrate very special occasions during these stressful times. Rather than mourn or grieve the loss of those old traditions, now is the time to be creative, flexible, and open to adapting old, tradition, old traditions or discovering new traditions. And I'm sure some of you have seen on television how um, some folks have celebrated weddings at the bedside or some uh, folks have gone to prom. So there's just different ways that people are thinking about and how to celebrate and still participate in these types of celebrations. But I'd like to give you some concrete or practical tips to manage the chaos that's associated with special times. One helpful strategy is to develop a special occasion preparedness plan. This plan would be similar to a hurricane preparedness plan. That's what we deal with in Texas and other areas that may be tornadoes. It actually maps out the details of how to prepare for those special events. The plan can also allow to the caregiver to make some trade-offs in their roles when trying to care for a loved one during these special times. Here are a few tips that can be or things that will help your plan. Determine what can realistically be done. Create a stable and realistic role while you are caring for your loved ones. Perhaps you are the person who hosted all the special events or cooked all day. This may not be the best time to stress yourself out with these activities. And if you decide to go ahead, delegate those responsibilities or some of those responsibilities. Identify the strengths of your caregiver team. Find out who does what. Assign a role to each family member or friend who wishes to be a part of the team. Another thing you can do is always have a ready-to-go bag packed. And this bag would, go, would include medical supplies, extra clothing, copies of important document, documents such as your um, copies of your prescriptions, contact numbers of your health care providers, and, the, num and uh, the numbers also of the members of your caregiving team. Trying to pack for a vacation or a travel is chaotic enough without having to worry about items needed to provide continuity of care for your loved ones. So these ready-to-go packs have proven to be quite useful for the patient and the caregiver. I would also like to address the healthcare professionals listening to all the calls. And I really liked what Dr. Lee said in his introductory remarks. He made it very clear that the patient and um, that the caregiver is an important member of the of the healthcare team. So here's a few tips, though, that caregivers can do. First, take a moment to acknowledge the caregiver when they are present at clinical visits. A simple remark such as "I would like you to know you are an important member of the healthcare team," or maybe even going a step further by stating. We appreciate everything you do to take care of your wife, your husband, your child, whomever. These are simple remarks, but they acknowledge the caregiver as being valued and important, and it can empower a caregiver to ask for support um, when they need it. Second, remind the caregivers about the need for self-care 
and inform them self-care is essential in providing good quality care to their loved one. For example, you may say, Miss Texas, taking care of yourself is as important as taking care of your child, your uncle, your spouse. Third, if possible, provide the caregivers with information regarding resources that may be helpful to them. Information coming from a member of the health care team is valued by a caregiver. When a, when a team member goes out of their way to provide information, it can make the caregiver feel special and increase the likelihood of following through with the resources or referrals. So finally and most important, I'd like to remind all the caregivers on this call, keep tabs on your own physical and mental health and when needed, seek professional help from services such as those that will be discussed by Ms. O'Brien later in this session. Remember, you and the person you are caring for will reap the benefits of a healthy caregiver. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and the suggestions you may have for our listeners. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. It's always wonderful, so very helpful, and really giving very specific tips to caregivers and specifically about the go-to bag and things to have, um, really handy. That's so important. So I know there are questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Carly O'Brien. Ms. O'Brien is an oncology social worker. She is um, the Caregiver Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and Ms. O'Brien is going to address long-distance caregivers, self-care and stress management tips, Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services, and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. O'Brien. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I'm happy to be on this call today, and it's so good to hear Dr. Lee and Dr. Palos talking so much about how important the role of caregivers is. Um, and I certainly want to emphasize that and reiterate a lot of what they said. What we know about caregiving is that the role and experience of a caregiver doesn't necessarily fit into a very small box. So for a lot of people, caregiving comes in sort of untraditional ways, but that doesn't make the role any less important, needed, or valuable. A lot of people with cancer have caregivers who live far away. That's the reality of the climate of our world today, and it's important that we acknowledge those people who are caregiving from far away. And we refer to those folks as long-distance caregivers. So it's a term that, and an experience that can be unfamiliar and confusing, but I do want to remind anyone who is fulfilling this role that you can be a meaningful part of your loved one's cancer experience, whether you live locally or are caring from a long distance. Caregivers who don't live local to their loved one can provide significant emotional support. They can offer a listening ear and a sense of camaraderie and social support for their loved one. A lot of that relies on phone, text, email, Skype. Technology is an advantage and can really help a long-distance caregiver to feel connected, to feel updated, and to feel in the loop. Staying in touch and being emotionally available to talk about difficult subjects, but also just normal things, often helps the patient to feel supported, to feel like themselves, and this can also help the long-distance caregiver to feel like they're contributing and being helpful. That layer of emotional support is, as often, is often as helpful as providing physical care and some of the things that Dr. Palos mentioned. So it's important to keep this in mind. Caregivers can also help with a lot of practical tasks on the medical side of their loved one's care, whether they're close or far away. They can coordinate medical appointments and manage medical records, 
they can get to know their medical team and advocate for their loved one's needs, both health-related and otherwise, regardless of where they live. So consider sending your loved one a list of questions that you might have. It might give them some food for thought, and they might also be able to discuss them with their doctors and get some answers or clarity that can be helpful for you both. This way, you feel involved, you get your questions answered, and it also reminds the patient that you're there for them and that you remember these major appointments that they've got going on. Long-distance caregivers can also help their loved one with day-to-day -day things to help them just stay organized, which is so important during the course of cancer care. Caregivers from a long distance can help to manage household bills or finances. They can organize legal paperwork, can direct patients to resources and information about things like advanced directives, wills, and healthcare proxies. These are important things to help ensure that your loved one is being well cared for on all levels and also across the continuum of care. A long distance caregiver can also help their loved one to enlist additional support. You can arrange for other friends and family to drop off meals or coordinate transportation. You can learn about local support groups or workshops that they can attend. Patients often rely on their caregivers to take on some of this legwork when they don't have the energy or they just don't feel well. And because these tasks usually just take a phone call or email, they're really well suited for caregivers even if they're not nearby. But a common theme that we hear amongst long-distance caregivers is that they struggle with feelings of guilt and wish that they could do more for their loved one with cancer. So remind yourself of all that you're doing instead of just focusing on what you can't do. Give yourself credit for the efforts that you've made and check in with your loved one to see if they have any suggestions about how you can continue to be helpful to them. And like my co-presenter spoke of earlier and I'll talk a lot more about, remember to take care of yourself. Long-distance caregivers need support, too, even if they don't necessarily identify as a quote-unquote caregiver. So feel free to reach out to a support group or contact a local social worker to help you make meaning out of your caregiver experience. So we've talked a lot about self-care, and I think we, we all know that it, that's a really important part of the caregiver experience. And this is going to get reiterated again and again, and that's really for good reason. It's very easy for caregivers to put their own needs on the back burner in order to support someone with cancer. But we want to start to challenge that. In order to be a good caregiver to someone else, you have to be taking good care of yourself. You know that message that they reiterate when you get on the airplane, you've got to put on your oxygen mask first before helping others? The same goes for caregiving, and that's repeated on every flight for good reason. Uh, and Dr. Palos mentioned some of this, but when we talk about self-care, we mean both physical and emotional care, and focusing on both can help ensure that you're in a good place and that you're equipped to take on the responsibilities and the impact of caregiving. So a couple of tips that I offer to caregivers when it comes to self-care is to start with the basics. Are you eating three meals a day? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you doing some kind of physical activity once a day? One thing that caregivers find especially helpful is to start your self-care regimen with the idea of maintaining what already works rather than adding lots of extras because then you can just feel more exhausted. Be sure that you're taking care of your own physical health too. So schedule your regular physical exams with your doctors and make sure that you're on top of any other follow-up care that you might need. Getting organized and keeping a calendar of your own appointments can help you to make this a priority. 
And it's true that feeling physically healthy can improve your mood and outlook. So the benefits are twofold, both for you and your loved one. The other thing that I hear very often from caregivers um, is that self-care is sort of idealist. It has to take a lot of time, energy, or money. Uh, but again, this is an idea that we want to challenge, and I think that's a common misconception. Sometimes good self-care just takes a little bit of creativity. We know that you might not have an opportunity for a spa day or a vacation, but can you go for a short walk on your lunch break? Can you call a friend when you start to feel overwhelmed? Write down your thoughts in a journal? Schedule a monthly date night to look forward to? Self-care can even mean something as simple as taking some slow, deep breaths when you're feeling overwhelmed, spending five extra minutes in the shower, or going to bed 30 minutes earlier than you normally would. Be intentional with your self-care efforts. This will help to make them part of your daily routine. And it also can make you feel better able to tolerate some of the challenges that come with caregiving and can ultimately help you manage stress. We also know that reaching out for additional support is another healthy way to cope with stress and to improve self-care. Whether it's spending time with supportive friends or family, connecting with a counselor, joining a support group, feeling connected with others can be restorative and encouraging. It can also help you to feel a lot less alone in your experience. And I just want to say that I commend all of you who are taking the time out to listen to this call today. That's one step in taking good care of yourself, so definitely a good starting place. So we know that coping with cancer and caregiving can be unique and isolating experiences. Support groups can really help connect a group of people with similar experiences who really understand what it's like to be a caregiver who's impacted by cancer based on their everyday real-life experience. Connecting with this kind of network can help to ease feelings of isolation, provides a safe and comfortable space to share information and gain knowledge and insight. And that support is often different than the support that family or friends can provide. Talking to these people who really get it may make you feel less as though you're being a burden, less censored in your feelings, and just more understood. The good news is that these days many organizations provide support groups in person as well as over the phone and online, making them more accessible than ever. Cancer Care provides a variety of support groups in each of these different modalities. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face support groups, which are held at our offices in New York City, Long Island, New Jersey, and Connecticut. But if you don't live in those areas, we can help you find face-to-face -face groups in your own community. At Cancer Care, we also offer a wide range of online support groups. We even have one for those who are lung cancer caregivers. I've been happy to be able to facilitate some of those in the past, and it's been a very rewarding experience to see the connections that can be made. So these online groups take place by using a password-protected message board format. It's not a live chat, but it's led by a professional oncology social worker who can offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and members have to register to join, so there is some commitment and accountability. Members can participate by posting in the group 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So when you can't sleep at 3 a.m. or you're stuck waiting in the doctor's office, these are good times to get connected when, when you have some downtime. We know that time is a luxury. Some of our online gr groups are specific to a certain diagnosis, while others are more general. Um, and our online support group team is managed by oncology social workers and we will always do our best to help you find the best fit. 
Cancer Care also has telephone support groups, which allow you to connect with other people from across the country who share similar concerns in weekly, regularly scheduled one-hour sessions. Know that whether you join these groups in person, over the phone, or online, members really do report sharing an increased sense of connection, understanding, and direction. And this goes such a long way in helping you find the tools to cope with your caregiver experience, in providing an outlet for the many mixed feelings that come with this role, and in maximizing the support that you're able to provide to yourself and also to your loved ones. And of course, while we're talking about support, keep in mind that cancer care is a good starting place to seek supportive services. We're a national nonprofit organization staffed by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and all of our services are completely free of charge. We're experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arrive after a diagnosis and throughout the caregiver experience. In addition to the support groups that I mentioned, Cancer Care also offers free individual counseling for when you feel like you need more personalized support, educational resources like the Connect Education Workshop you're listening to right now, and our social work staff can provide information about other resources, practical help, and also some limited financial assistance. Since this call is also focused on lung cancer, I want to uh, talk a little bit about a lung cancer-specific resource that's new to our organization. Cancer Care has a new lung cancer helpline in partnership with the Longevity Foundation. By calling this helpline, callers have the opportunity to get information from Cancer Care's oncology social workers as they normally would, while also getting access to longevity services, including but not limited to education and information through their Lung Cancer 101 section of their website, the Lung Cancer Support Community, which is a dedicated social networking um, that offers support to anyone touched by lung cancer, the Longevity Lifeline Support Program, which matches a lung cancer patient or caregiver with a mentor who's experienced a lung cancer diagnosis and treatment, and the Longevity Clinical Trial Ambassador Program, which matches patients considering enrolling in a clinical trial with survivors who can offer information based on their own experience. And the amazing Longevity staff can also help answer medical questions and can refer patients to doctors for a second opinion. So it's a really great resource for support and information, both for patients and caregivers. So the contact number for the Longevity Helpline is 844-360-5864. And if you're interested in learning more about Cancer Care's other services or participating in a Cancer Care support group, please call our toll-free HOPELINE at 1-800-813-4673 to speak with an oncology social worker or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Again, I appreciate your time and attention, so thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much, um, Carly. That was really excellent, wonderfully, very comprehensive Lots of good information for everybody and lots of resources, and certainly our um, collaboration with the Longevity Foundation, that's wonderful as well, a wonderful resource for people to get information as well, so thank you. And now we do have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, our lead operator to go ahead and explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and um, so Crystal, if you could tell people how to queue up for questions. and. Um, And if we don't get to your question, I'll tell you at the very end how uh, to get your questions answered. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, 
then the number one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by asking, by, I'm sorry, by clicking ask a question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that's star one to ask a question. We have a question for one of our online participants, and I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Lee with this question, um, and I'll have uh, others um, add to it as well. Um, and the question um, is, what is the role of antidepressant therapy with people living with lung cancer? How do you determine if and when they are necessary? And the the question go on, goes on, who prescribes these medications? I have a close friend who has finished six weeks of radiation, five days a week, one day a week of chemo. Since the start, he has become withdrawn, refusing contact with friends and family, stopped all activities, and spends his days on the couch. Personally, has, has, his personality has totally changed. So if you could start with that one, and I'm going to have the entire team address it, but if Dr. Lee, if you could just address this um, and it also in terms of just what might be going on here. And again, it's just a general uh, response to a very personal question. Thank you. Thank you for the, for the question. Uh, depression is extremely common in amongst uh, cancer sufferers. Uh, it's already common enough in the community uh, that uh, more than one in four will get depression in the community. In cancer uh, patients, it's double that number. So. Um, uh, depression can be managed in a number of ways, including uh, counseling, support, and psychotherapy, as well as antidepressants. So I believe all of those options uh, should be pursued. Um, in terms of the first question on who prescribes antidepressants, uh, I myself, as a medical oncologist, uh, have prescribed this on uh, very often to my, to my own patients, uh, but also I utilize the, um, uh, the support uh, if this is particularly for patients with a history of depression and when the depression symptoms are, are uh, very uh, obvious, uh, so depressed mood uh, and uh, loss of interest in usual activities, withdrawing from, from uh, social uh, activities and, and, um, uh, and uh, accompanied by insomnia, weight loss, loss of appetite, lots of other uh, constellation of symptoms that, that last persistently more than two weeks. So this is what we term major depression. Uh, and if this happens, then uh, uh, I'm comfortable prescribing an antidepressant. At the same time, the, uh, the treatment of depression is not just uh, pharmacotherapy, it's not just medications. So uh, I often refer, also refer patients to our um, uh, uh, mental health and psychiatric uh, uh, service in uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and we have dedicated psychiatrists who who um, help patients. And sometimes uh, it's it's intensive uh, counselling that they they need, uh, with or without antidepressants. Sometimes it's joining a support group um, uh, to provide them with um, a source of uh, network. And uh, sometimes it's just uh, simple counseling with our social workers. So I think all of that, those them should be uh, pursued in, in your friend who, uh, is, is, uh, who you've noticed uh, some, some uh, personality changes and withdrawing, withdrawing from social activities in the face of uh, cancer and, and cancer treatment. Uh, so I would encourage uh, uh, your friend to to talk to uh, his or her oncologist and to establish also a referral to mental health support uh, 
who there, there's definitely help available for this, and it's readily fixable. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Palos, do you want to add to that? Well, first I'd just like to thank the person who asked the question. It's obvious that they have compassion uh, for their friend that's experiencing this. Um, and just a couple of thoughts. Dr. Lee did a, a wonderful job of, of uh, answering the question, but a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, um, as a friend, if you feel comfortable, you might want to speak to the person and um, find out whether or not they would be willing to um, get some help first. I noticed that some people don't like the word depressed, which is why I say, are you feeling blue? Do you feel low? Um, so sometimes those are terms that might make a, a, help a person admit that they are really having the depression. One of the first things also is they'll need to get a screening or an assessment, and there's different tools for that, which can be done at the oncologist office but what I have found also is sometimes patients, one, don't know that their oncologist can help them with that, those types of symptoms. They think, oh, they're only going to help me with my, with my lung cancer. So that might be one thing that maybe um, that person hasn't had, you know, doesn't realize that they can ask their oncologist for help. The second thing is I've heard patients say, well, I don't want to burden my oncologist. They're so busy taking care of the really sick patients. And they don't realize that you know this is another way that they're sick also. So the suggestion could be go to the primary care doctor. They may feel more comfortable going to their primary care physician or provider and give and sharing that type of information. So uh, you know there are some other solutions to that uh, if they feel uncomfortable about going back to the oncologist and asking for help. Excellent, thank you. And um, Ms. O'Brien, do you want to add as well? Well, I think first I'd just like to echo what my colleagues have said wholeheartedly. I think normalizing the experience of feeling down or depressed during cancer treatment is essential. This is something that we hear all the time. Treatment can be really difficult. Uh, the impact of the, the drugs that one is taking, uh, the impact of surgery potentially, all of this comes with so much change. And for someone to be able to wrap their head around all of that and to maintain some normalcy in their routine can be a real challenge. So I think to the person that asked that question, I would say thank you for addressing this. I would agree that speaking with the person with cancer directly about how common this is and that simply broaching a conversation with their oncologist or primary care physician or the social worker at their treatment center is a really good starting place because they don't have to feel this way. There is relief and a team of people who will work together to try and find the kind of relief that's best for any given person. So I think just speaking up and clearly having a good support system like uh, the person who asked the question is really important and that's clearly already intact. So it's a good starting place. Excellent. Excellent question. And really, it could be its own conference call that I think about it because it's such an important question and I appreciate um, the question and all the uh, responses to it. Um, and we may come back to it um, during the call. There may be other questions that remind us of this question that we want to add to it. Um, and um, so I have another question from our online participants. Um, uh, and I'm going to give this question to um, Dr. Palos. 
What are your thoughts on caregivers taking vacations? I've been putting off a needed and wanted vacation, but I'm fearful of leaving my mom. She has a part-time aid. and thinking that I won't be able to enjoy my time away because of worry and or guilt. So, um, Dr. Palos, if you could begin by addressing that question. Uh, that is an excellent question, and it talks again about some of the feelings that um, Ms. O'Brien mentioned, which is that guilt. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think is essential, if you're thinking about going on a vacation, is look around and see who else can be like a backup team. You know, I mean, everyone... Um, like even the football teams have some kind of alternative person that can, can jump in or, you know, another quarterback that can jump in to help. So I'd start identifying people who, who you know you can trust to go in and check on your mom. You know, and I don't know whether she's you think she's going to stay by herself or if the person will stay with her, but apparently it might be good to kind of see, does she need someone to stay with her on a 24-hour basis? So that might entail a family member or, um, again, another um, helper to come in, a professional caregiver to come in. And once you know, once you have all of that, the foundation for that planned, then you can start, you know, planning. Okay, what am I going to do for my vacation? Um, where am I going to stay? And all of those things, so you can have all those numbers and information readily available to the team that you're going to leave behind to take care of your mom. I'm sure your mom would want you to go on a vacation and to get replenished again, and um, you know, go and enjoy yourself. It is hard being a caregiver. Um, no matter how much you love someone, no matter how much you want to give them, it is hard being a caregiver 24-7 over a period of time. So that time that you take away and go and enjoy yourself is going to be so helpful when you come back. You'll have the new energy and hopefully you know a new perspective to be able to keep on with the work that you're doing as a caregiver. So those are just some thoughts, but I'm sure Dr. Lee or Ms. O'Brien have some other ideas. Ms. O'Brien, do you want to add to that? Because that's clearly... <laughs> Absolutely. It, this is a question that I, I get asked all the time, and there's no rule book, right? There's no right or wrong answer that says, yes, go on a vacation or don't. I really encourage caregivers to sort of trust their gut. If they're even thinking about going on a vacation, that's usually a good sign that they feel able to get away for a little while. Most people aren't going to even think about planning a vacation while their loved one is in distress or in crisis. So I would say take that at face value and acknowledge that. Um, the planning that Dr. Palos mentioned is really essential and will help you to feel organized and prepared. Usually, uh, if possible, I suggest getting refundable tickets in case of an emergency, if that's possible. Um, but I will say, if you do decide to go on this vacation, which I think every caregiver deserves a vacation, set limits while you're away. You know, you don't want to spend your entire vacation worried about what's going on at home, checking your phone 20 times a day. So give yourself permission to check your phone once in the morning and once in the evening and, uh, you know, have some sort of emergency plan where somebody will contact you only in case of an emergency. But, you know, try and really enjoy the time that you're away because we know that your time is a really valuable commodity. So honor that, honor that break and give yourself permission to enjoy it rather than being physically in another place and mentally being stuck at home. So just a few things to consider. 
Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Lee, did you want to add to it as well? This is a great, this is a really multidisciplinary team, and so I know that everyone has has encountered this. And um, so, Dr. Lee, do you probably have patients asking you this and families asking you this as well? Absolutely, it's it's uh, very important to the, my patients' well-being, and in fact, I'm 100% supportive and totally agree with uh, what's what was uh, discussed with uh, Dr. Palos and Ms. O'Brien. Um, so as, as an oncologist, I'm 100% supportive uh, of patients who desire a, a vacation, however far that may be uh, in terms of uh, a traveling uh, itin itinerary. Uh, we can make it work. It, the, the key is planning so and flexibility, uh, as, as already discussed. So, um, uh, it's, it's important to engage that conversation with the treating oncologist and to, uh, uh, to have um, uh, advanced uh, of uh, uh, scheduling and planning so that treatment visits can be scheduled accordingly, and it's off, it's most mostly possible, um, and uh, and to have a degree of flexibility. Sometimes uh, short trips are probably the best. Uh, so in an order of two weeks, one to two weeks, uh, those are very easily we can we can schedule that in, uh, regardless of of uh, uh, what time point of, of treatment that often can be done. I had a patient who, um, uh, who who was actually going on to clinical trial with very stringent uh, requirements, and um, and she she wanted to go back to uh, uh, to, to Japan, and, and she lives in New York, but go to Japan for two weeks, and uh, and and I was just able to even fit that in um, in the clinical trial, talking to the to this uh, to this uh, clinical trial sponsor regulators and. Um, and the patient. So I, we try very hard uh, as oncologists to to make that happen for the patient. It makes a world of difference. Uh, had just not, the other day, I had a patient who uh, uh, really, really wanted to go to Haiti um, and and visit his extended uh, relatives and friends, and and he's getting treatment with me in New York. And so I, I've uh, adjusted the treatment schedule so it made it happen. He went there for two two weeks. He came back. He was so happy, such a happy guy. And then he, he's now on a clinical trial. And and every time I see him, he asks me, when can I next go to Haiti? And 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 um, so so those things um, uh, can be uh, planned uh, in advance and uh, just just have a degree of flexibility. And and also as mentioned, uh, because sometimes because if you're if the patient becomes sick because of cancer symptoms and all that. Uh, you may need a refundable ticket to change the plan, and, and uh, that that is always have to keep at the back of the mind. But usually, a lot of trips you can you can re refund until fairly close uh, to the time. So, um, uh, so I'm all for it. Excellent. Well, so there are a lot of options for people. Um, and we have another question um, from actually um, one of our. Um, actually, online participants, and I'm going to give this question to uh, Ms. O'Brien. Um, it's how can I take a breather um, when it's kind of inconsistent with a lot. It's, it is consistent with many of the other questions to some extent, but slightly different. How can I take a breather when there is no one else to help with caregiving? So, Ms. O'Brien, can you address this question? But would you also, and you have already, and I think others have too. But could you kind of focus on these like mini? How do you take a mini vacation? A mini break. How do you do that and still get some replenishment? I think that that concept does that work? 
That's a good question. And taking a breather is really important. Take as many breathers as you can. We recognize that it, it probably doesn't feel possible most of the time. But I really encourage people to sort of look at how the patient is doing, how the person with cancer is doing. Most people with cancer do not need uh, 24-hour-a-day care in terms of, of active hands-on care. So find a time of the day where your loved one seems to be having a better day, uh, where they are taking a rest, and read a book. Go for a walk around the block. Um, you know, enlist some help, a visitor to come sit with them while you get out for a bit. Um, sometimes the breathers are things like going to the grocery store and sort of approaching that in a different way, um, you know, browsing the aisles, taking a little bit more time, fantasizing about a recipe that you might want to make. Again, they're simple things that you might have to do anyway, but thinking about them in a different way can make them a little bit less sort of burdensome or make them feel a little bit less like hands-on caregiving. Um, you know, the other thing that is very popular now that people are talking a lot more about is mindfulness exercises, visualization, relaxation techniques. Cancer Care has a section of our website that's focused on that, and there are a lot of apps that also focus on how to sort of mentally step away for a minute, even if you physically can't get away. Um, and we really list those on our website because we know it's hard to be creative sometimes. So I would say check those out. Uh, check those out. Um, you know, call a friend. All those sort of basic things to take a breather. But literally, take a breather. Take some slow, deep breaths, and get creative. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Kalos, do you want to add to that? I would just add um, one of the things that we've seen a lot in the research is how um, exercise seems to help the caregivers. You know, um, back in the day, we thought that uh, cancer patients should stay in bed and not do anything and conserve their energy. And lo and behold, we found out, whoop, it was the complete opposite, that, you know, we want our cancer patients to do some form of exercise because it really gives them more energy. So we're having a couple of uh, some new research studies that are showing the same thing for our caregivers. And it doesn't mean you have to go run a marathon or even half a marathon or even a three-mile marathon. It just means that maybe what you can do is just do some stretches. That's um, some type of exercise. Just something to get the blood going and to you know stretch the muscles. The other thing that um, I've heard from caregivers is um, I feel guilty because I don't want to do anything. I just want to go sit somewhere and not do anything. Um, and I think it's okay to give yourself permission to do that. You can go sit outside on the bench and not do anything. For the, for, you know, but then after a while, you'll start realizing you're breathing in the air that feels good. That you know, you're looking at a tree. Maybe there's a bird that gets your, you know, your attention. So sitting and not doing anything is not bad because after a while, you'll get into the moment of what you're experiencing there. Sometimes you just need that. So I would encourage people to to try to look at exercise and maybe uh, taking some time to just give yourself a time out from everything. Excellent. And, and Dr. Lee, do you want to add anything as well? Uh, I, I agree with everything that's that's discussed. <laughs> okay. Excellent. So um, 
I hope people um, have gotten a lot from this program and lots of different um, tips on really, um, you know, how as caregivers they can actually also attend to themselves. And um, I also want to thank our speakers. They've been an extraordinary team, just an amazing team. I'd love to get them back as often as I could. I'm sure you all would like to carry them around. Program itself is recorded, and so you can listen to it as a podcast or on telephone replay um, as often as you want. And it is it is something that I think, as a caregiver, one often um, does appreciate hearing these messages over and over again because sometimes it is so hard to kind of um, to step away from that role. I also want to thank all of you who've been on the call today, all of you who've been listening, and all of you who've taken the time, of course, to. Um, to ask questions, really ask excellent questions. Now, I did say I would let you all know what to do in case one of your questions wasn't answered, so I'm going to give you two resources. Um, one, of course, is um, I always give people the National Cancer Institute as a resource, um, the 1-800-422-6237 for any medical questions you may have, or you also can visit their website, www.cancer.gov. Um, it's a wonderful resource. They have a live chat feature where you can post your questions and their information specialist will help you. You also can contact Cancer Care with a special collaboration with Longevity Foundation and indeed um, get help with your questions from us as well. Um, and also if you would like to access some of the services from Cancer Care in addition to this particular service, you can ask also um, for financial or practical assistance for counseling either counseling one-on-one or in a support group or a, a support group either on the telephone or online. And online support groups are available to people all over the world to some extent, as are these programs. And the telephone uh, support groups, it depends on the time difference. The online groups are not time sensitive so that indeed you can post at all different times of the day or night and you don't have to be on all the same time zones. Um, so that, that kind of makes a difference to people as well. Um, and uh, we have lots of publications, these type of programs, and a very active and robust website for you to visit as well. So you can contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 at or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude today, I would not want any of you to feel alone in coping with uh, as a caregiver with your loved one's uh, lung cancer or with any cancer. Um, and I'd like you to now know that you're part of this huge support of services that are available to you um, really by telephone or via the website online. Also, we do have another program tomorrow um, for caregivers, um, and it's called Care Coordination for Your Loved One Living with Cancer and Other Health Problems. So for those of you on the call who are struggling with those issues as well, um, please do at the same uh, time, uh, 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's on uh, tomorrow being Wednesday and uh, June 14th, and I hope that program might be of interest to um, some of you on the call today. So as we conclude the call today, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and I want to thank you all for your participation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.